Pass First point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond. You are listening to another episode of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode is another edition of Mailbag Monday, answering listener-submitted questions all episode long. If you want to get involved in Mailbag Monday, there's two ways to do it. One, just tweet at me, at Mike G. Rich on Twitter. That's at Mike G. Rich. Or wait for Monday mornings when about 9 a.m. Pacific time, I send out a tweet soliciting questions. You respond to that tweet, I'll get it in the show. Simple as that. If you're not a Twitter user, the other way to get involved in Mailbag Monday is to email me. LockedOnBlazersPod at gmail.com. Send me an email, and I'll probably remember to check the email and get it on the show. I'm not as uh, as competent there, but I'm getting better. I'm trying to get better. We got some Gmail questions this week as proof that I actually do read the emails. So let's get started. Let's get right into it. Our first question of Mailbag Monday comes from Nicholas Kerdron at nkerdron on Twitter who asks, Ariza is a 3 and D veteran the Blazers need, but his contract is absurd. Is it possible to rescind his current contract to sign him to a new one for roughly $6 million a year for two years instead of waiving him? No. That is not how NBA contracts work. There is no renegotiation. And if the Blazers were to waive him his non-guaranteed contract, I believe they have to wait a, until the following league year. So that would be July 1st of 2021 or it's hard, the 2021 offseason, whenever that might be, in order to uh, in order to re-sign him. So Arisa's contract is a little bit... Uh, large exorbitant he's going to make 12.8 million dollars when next season uh when next season begins it, it, it is an overpay for a 35 year old uh with his skill set uh a young trevor reza really would have unlocked what the blazers needed for the last say five years he's definitely removed from what he was uh that time ago but he's still pretty valuable um th- but them's the breaks Nicholas, uh, you just, you have to, that's how it works. The Kings gave him two for $25 million. He's probably going to get every single dollar of that. Congratulations to Trevor Reza and his agent. Speaking of Trevor Reza, this next question comes from Tom O'Dell at ZimaGuy69 on Twitter. Just a great handle, Tom. Great work. Tom asks, assuming the Blazers allow... Ariza's contract to become fully guaranteed for next season. Who do you see, see starting at the three, Ariza or Hood? So, like I said, he's uh, he's due twelve point eight million if he's on the roster, and he and I'm almost certain he will be. Uh, it's only guaranteed just shy of two million, one point eight million dollars. So, if the Blazers wanted to waive him, they could waive him at that non guaranteed price, and it wouldn't count uh, as much against the cap. But I don't think the the savings isn't worth it for what Ariza brings, which is as Tom points out, a debatably starting caliber forward. So who do I see starting at the three next year? And Tom notes in the question, I can see a good argument for either. So let's lay out the arguments. One, Rodney Hood is is younger and a better scorer and probably a better shooter than Trevor Ariza. Um, he has the size to play two or three. He can handle the ball a little bit better than Ariza. He's just a, probably a better offensive player overall. Size-wise, they're about the same, so there's not much of a trade-off. Ariza's probably a little bit longer, but Hood doesn't... You don't lose much with Hood in terms of just straight-up length. The argument for Trevor Ariza. He's a better defensive player. Uh, He's interested in playing defense. It's one of his calling cards in the league. He seems to be a a better cutter in space from the little bit I've seen, and you don't lose much of a drop-off offensively. He's... 
Hood was just shooting at an amazing level before he got hurt. But that's the big thing here for me, is that Rodney Hood got hurt. He has an Achilles injury that probably means he won't be ready for the start of next season, unless, of course, the start of next season is Christmas of 2020 or something like that. Then there's a chance Rodney Hood plays. It's unclear to me exactly how when these dates are, so I'm having trouble making some of these predictions, but Hood is going to be injured. And then and I think that, in any case, like Hood is injured now, and he's likely going to be recovering from injury, I should say, still when the season starts. But even if they were both healthy, I would lean towards starting Trevor Ariza because Hood's, as a better offensive player, I think helps prop up that second unit a little bit. You know, that second when Dame sits, that's always the question for these Blazers is where the offense comes from. Often it's CJ McCollum. This year it was a lot of Carmelo Anthony coming back on that second unit. It wasn't really Simons and Trent Jr. When Trent was good on offense is usually when he's playing alongside the starters for the most part. So I think Hood fits better as a off-the-bench score, and then you kind of ride who's playing better to close games. You can also play Ariza at the four. The Blazers even experimented playing Rodney Hood at the four a little bit. But I lean towards Ariza because the defense, his length, you know, slightly longer, but his length on defense I think is more valuable to this team, uh, more valuable playing alongside Damon CJ in that starting group than it is. Uh, who closes the game? We'll see. But uh, if I had to, to make an argument, I would probably lean Ariza right now. Okay, next question comes from Logan Gillis at Logan Gillis on Twitter, who asks, do you think the season being suspended and in limbo has any effect on the likelihood that the Blazers would try to re-sign Carmelo Anthony? No, uh, and frankly, Logan, I don't totally understand the reasoning why it would, um, like a, a shortened a shortened year, less miles, um, less negotiation period in, in, uh, in the off season, when when and if it it shows up, I mean it's going to show up, but however, whatever form it takes, um, no, I don't think it has any effect on him. Um, I'm sh- you know tweet at me, explain explain the the reason why it would. But I think Mello is going to if the Blazers get what they want, which is a starting Zach Collins at at power forward, Mello is going to have to make the decision whether he wants to come off the bench for this team or whether he would like to seek out a starting lineup or sign up for a bench role in another another area whether whether coming off the bench here is as valuable as say coming off the bench for the Lakers um not that I think that that's like a guaranteed but I'm, I'm, it'll certainly be under consideration him signing with um likely you know if he's willing to take a reduced role signing with a a really cont- true contender type team as opposed to a hopeful contender type team like is what the Blazers will likely fancy themselves when next season kicks off Okay, second segment, we'll come back and answer more of your questions. But first, I want to tell you all about Postmates. From the early morning breakfast burrito to a 12-pack of beers while you watch the recorded game on your DVR, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. And that's where Postmates comes in. They'll deliver your food from every restaurant you can think of right to your door, but they don't just deliver food. They deliver things that make life easier, like grocery delivery or whatever you can think of delivery too, from convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. Just download the Postmates app on iOS or Android and find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving my listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. 
To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code LOCKEDONNBA. That's code LOCKEDONNBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. All right. Still Mailbag Monday. Let's keep it rolling with more of your questions. This next one comes from Matthew at Reverend Romulus, who asks, with the NBA working on an African league and the recent announcement of high school players going to the G League instead of college, which do you expect to see first? A full minor league st- major league baseball style minor league system for the NBA or an NBA Europe league? Um, <laughs> I think both of them are relatively unlikely, but I would lean towards a full minor league system. I don't think you'll get, I don't think you'll get uh, like the granular Major League Baseball style where there's, uh, you know, short season A ball, long season A ball, rookie ball, double A, triple A, and a handful of stops in between. I don't think you're going to get from high school, you know, from whatever high school age on up or that European style where it's like elementary school on up um, into the pros. But I do think that there's, I, th- I think you're more likely to see Every team in the league get a G League team. I'm looking at you, Portland Trailblazers and Denver Nuggets. Um, and then some sort of formalized rules about how... To, now that... should When that happens, and every team has a minor league affiliate, there'll be some formalized rules maybe involving roster expansion or how you can use the G League team, how many players are allowed to come up, and all those things. Why I think that's more likely than NBA Europe is because Euro League is a huge money league. Like, the it's the, uh, the best... Like, international league outside of the United States is in Spain, but the the tournament that all those large European clubs compete in, in EuroLeague, and in EuroCup, and, and in the EuroLeague, it's it's just a like a big money organization that's been around since for 20 plus years. Uh, it, there used to be a FIBA EuroLeague that I think existed back to the 60s, and this sort of new entity has existed over the last, I, I believe it's the year 2000, it might be 1999, I might have my dates confused, but th- I mean, it's just a long-established league, you're talking about there's the big Turkish team gets in there, the big Greek teams get in there, Real Madrid gets in there, I mean... Uh, these are, it's just too large of a thing for the NBA to go in and try to compete with. And the NBA would have to probably include these big money European basketball teams that already exist and play in their own domestic leagues and then come together for a Euro league. So I think, I think minor league is more likely just because there's too much financial competition in for NBA Europe to exist. Okay, this next question comes from Alice Longley at Alice in Portland on Twitter. What up, Alice? Alice asks, CJ McCollum's dog Fifi has been getting great press lately. Are there other Blazer pups that should be on a rescue dog lover's radar? Yeah, Fifi, big, big off-season acquisition by CJ McCollum and his partner. Uh, like Days into the lockdown, they, they adopted a, a puppy. Um, c- quite an undertaking, but, uh, you know, millionaires, different lifestyles than others. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of other guys have dogs. Um... Damien Lillard does not. Nurk does not. Off the top of my head, I don't believe Zach does. And I don't think the young guys do other than Anthony Simons, who as a rookie adopted a German Shepherd puppy named T-Mac. 
lovingly named after Tracy McGrady. Uh, Anthony Simons, of course, grew up in the Orlando area, and he is a 20-year-old, so for him, as a child, <laughs> T-Mac was like... T-Mac was like you know, a legend that had passed uh, Anthony Simons by. He was, you know, six when uh, T-Mac left town and joined the Houston Rockets, but still an Orlando legend. So yeah, uh, Ant's dog, T-Mac, a German Shepherd puppy, a German Shepherd one-year-old roughly. Now, a big thing for NBA guys is that they're on the road so much that you need either like a real full-time partner. So like, a, a, like if your wife lives in the same NBA city as you full-time and things like that. Um, a la Myers Leonard, whose wife was here and could look after their dogs. Um, you know, a, a girlfriend who's not always going to be around, or if you um, don't have a live-in partner, it's hard to take care of a dog, even if you have uh, paid help at home. But Anthony Simon's parents live in Portland. They're like at every single game from what I can tell. I, I feel like I see them at every single home game. Um so he's got his parents there who can help him raise the dog, unlike a lot of NBA players. I remember when Wesley Matthews was here back in the day, he did not have a live-in full-time partner or, or parents living in the community, and he had a dog briefly and then had to end up giving it away just because the NBA travel schedule, you know, you're on the road so much and you're you're gone so much that it's hard to be a good dog parent, hard to be a responsible dog parent. So yeah, check out, um, I don't know if there's pictures of T-Mac online, but Alice, uh, you're a sleuth. You can, you'll find it if it's out there. This next question comes from Bob from Gmail. Proof that I do check the email at least every 10 days, every other week. Sometimes I miss it, but I'm getting better. Here's a question from Bob. How do you view the long-term pairing of Zach Collins and Yusuf Nurkic? Clearly, Neil Olshay views Zach as a four for at least the near future. Having lost year a year for both these players obviously hurts the ability to evaluate such a pairing, but I have been skeptical since Olshay pinned Zach as the starting power forward. I think Zach's best position is the five. This best maximizes his ability to protect the rim and his above-average spacing ability for a center. When he slides to the four, I question his lateral quickness in guarding some fours and his shooting ability along alongside a relative non-shooter in Nurk. I think a heavy stagger of these two would benefit the team. Bring Nurk off the floor in the middle of the first quarter, slide Zach down to the five, bring a capable four off the bench. This brings me to my question, or next question. I guess it's a two-parter. How important is the team? Is it that the team finds a big that can play with Zach and Nurk, preferably a four with some decent spacing ability? I know capable forwards don't grow on trees, and if they do, Olshay certainly hasn't barked up that tree, but I think this is crucial for the team in maximizing both Nurk and Zach for next season and should be one of the most prioritized goals of the offseason. Let me start by just saying I think I agree with all of your... Uh, your assessment there, Bob. And also, that's just a real testament to Gmail. You can put two paragraphs together to ask your question. But in any case, here's the real stat, the most telling and important stat for the Blazers' future. Zach Collins, across three seasons, has appeared in 146 games. He has played a total of 2,487 minutes, and 123 of them have been next to Yusuf Nurkic. They just haven't played together. It is so, so rare that they play together. Um, they're, the, the numbers and their very limited time together are, are poor, but it's such a small sample size that it's meaning, it's mostly meaningless. I view Zach Collins the way Zach Collins views himself as a, as a center, as a, as a stretch, stretchy, I guess, five in the future. But the Blazers' hope of building a 
a long-term winner with this current core is that Collins and Nurkic can play together. This was supposed to be the year that they really tested it out. And they weren't really going to test it out until March. It was basically going to be the last 20 games of the season and a little bit of the playoffs, and you figure whether that works together. You weren't going to get a huge sample size, but you were probably going to get enough games to get an idea. You were going to get enough games at sort of high leverage moments to get an idea if it's okay. So while I do see Zach Collins as mostly a five, and I share your concerns that he's he just has a five skill set, um, even though if he's maybe just skinny like a power forward for now, I think the Blazers' hope of building a championship team with this current roster is that Zach Collins can play power forward regularly. But the answer to your next question about finding a, a someone who can play next to them is the most important thing of the offseason. I 100% agree. The Blazers got rid of their forwards. They just they decided this offseason they were going to go with very limited people who can play forward. It really was a bad plan. It was a terrible plan. Mario Hazonia and Anthony Tolliver seemed like nice gentlemen, but they were not particularly good NBA basketball players. Absolutely, the 100% top priority is finding a forward who can play next to Zach and next to Nurk and keep up some level of defense and rebounding. That's what they really missed this season. They were they got killed on the glass occasionally, and they weren't particularly good defending around the rim uh, other than Hassan Whiteside blocking shots. So I'm with you, Bob, and there's some numbers to back you up. Next question comes from Logan Gillis. At Logan Gillis on Twitter, getting his second question in on the show. Congratulations, Logan. Best slash worst Terry Stotts moments decisions decisions of the season. This is really this was really hard for me. Um, it probably deserves more more space than I can give it in uh, this specific setting. So, Logan, I'm going to give you an abbreviated version with a promise that we will revisit this exact question down the road. Here is my my best decision that Terry Stotts made. When Gary Trent Jr. looked like an NBA player, he let Gary Trent Jr. find out if he was an NBA player. Terry Stotts is pretty resistant to play young guys. In fact, I think Neil Olshay has mostly had to cook the books and just straight up make the roster into a certain shape that Terry Stotts has no choice but to play Anthony Simons, no choice but to put Zach Collins on the floor and not... Uh, Ed Davis, no, no choice but to play to play young players because Stotts just as his he's want to do. Um, it's it's not that he doesn't like young guys. It's just that he's a, he's a tr- he coaches via trust, and if you're young, you haven't as much time to build up trust, and you're likely to make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, Terry Stotts is going to give you the hook because my man wants you to execute, and he has little patience for doing things like forgetting the plays or running them wrong, things that young players often do. But when And this was mostly out of necessity at the time, but it was still the right decision. When Gary Trent Jr., who was not the chosen one in Anthony Simons, looked like an NBA player in January, Stotts didn't say, okay, well, that was a nice little game. He said, cool, you're going to play a bunch now, and we're just going to roll with you because you're my most effective guard off the bench. I thought that was his best decision. He didn't have a lot of easy ones. But my biggest issue with him early in the season was not staggering Dame and CJ. And I don't know if that comes from the top. That might be something beyond his decision making. That might be something that Neil lays out for him and says, hey, I want you to try this and you got to give me 25 games of trying this. Um, It's not, I don't think that happens all the time, but there are certainly mandates that come uh, that Terry is asked to follow and chooses or chooses not to, whatever it is. 
But early in the season, he was still playing a full bench unit and spending seven minutes in the first half, particularly without Dame or CJ on the floor, until they kind of reconfigured the rotation and took CJ out earlier and brought him back and let him really quarterback the second unit. That was just a stupid-ass idea. This is a stupid-ass plan. Uh, a lot of people come after Stotts for his style of defense. Um, I can understand why people don't like the way it looks. The drop coverage is, is passive. They don't force a lot of turnovers. But he has built some pretty good defensive teams using those schemes. And also, he had a bunch of shitty defenders on the roster this year. So I can't really... Um, while, you know, maybe you want to change it up, um, maybe you you come for him on that a little bit. I don't. I don't. I, I tend to think that that's not that big of a deal. But my two my best decision is letting Gary letting Gary Trent Jr. roll when he was rolling, and the worst decision was this insistence on trying to play Damon CJ maximize their minutes together. Uh, I've read some analytical reasons arguments for why that works because the Blazers sucked when either of them were out, so you might as well maximize the minutes that they're together. Uh, I don't agree. All right, we're going to come back in the third segment, close out the show with more of your questions. Still a pass first point guard. Still Mike Richmond. This is still Locked On Blazers. We're still rolling through Mailbag Monday. I'm going to close out the show answering more of your questions. And this next one comes from James in Beaverton via Gmail, who asks... Do you think next year should be Neil Olshay's last chance to put together a successful Blazers team? He pretty much inherited Dame, blew up the post Marcus team that made it to the Western Conference Finals, and now has the team going in the wrong direction. Uh, I'm not going to give Neil that short of a leash. Um, I think he kind of... I, I want to put it like this. I think he did an exceptional job in the immediate rebuild 2015 when LaMarcus left. That team was not supposed to be good, but he put together enough of the right players that they won 44 games and were a playoff team, right? Like that's, he did a really good job. You're going to, I'm going to be hard pressed, be hard pressed to convince me he didn't do a really good job there. I think he should have won executive of the year. Congratulations to the uh, uh, R.C. Buford of the San Antonio Spurs for winning that bad boy. The following year, he blew it. He just gave all his dudes too much money. He loves his guys, and he just gave them all the money in the world. He paid Myers. He paid Mo Harkless. He paid Evan Turner. And there's a hilarious anecdote where Evan Turner calls Andre Iguodala and said, Yo, dog, they offered me $70 million. And Andre Iguodala says, Yo, hang up and accept the offer. What are you doing? Like, don't give them time to think about it. Um, and if NBA players think you're overpaid, whoo boy, you must be overpaid. That same summer he gave, he maybe him, maybe... Paul Allen, but the team agreed to give Allen Crabb $75 million. 2016 was a nightmare, and yet the core of that 2016 team continued to be, I mean, they had a down year immediately, but, uh, you know, they made they made a second-round playoff push. They made the Western Conference Finals with that core. Evan Turner was fantastic in Game 6 and 7. They don't make the Western Conference Finals without his play uh, in those two games to close out the Denver Nuggets. It's, I get it. Um, and I think this year particularly was really bad. I think it was, I think he did a really poor job this year. Um, but he also had some bad luck. I think, I think it looks less like this was, this was an awful year, um, for him for sure. But also like if just, if Zach Collins is healthy for, if Zach Collins hurts his shoulder in January and not November and misses the whole season, well, you get, you know, 40 games of Zach and maybe you're much more competitive. Uh, if, 
the what if with injuries doesn't make sense always, and maybe it's unfair, but Rodney Hood getting injured, I don't think is Neil Olshay's fault. Building a roster with um, that relies so much on Anthony Tolliver and Mario Hazonia and maybe and and pushing Anthony Simons a little bit further than he was ready to go is a mistake, but I think this team would have been a low-level playoff team. Like, I think this was like a 44-win team if they're totally healthy, and they maybe maybe could have overachieved for a little bit more. So I'm not ready to give Olshay the this-is-your-last-chance, um, although I, I, I think Nurk getting back to full health is going to make you... Um, Remember that Neil Olshay also traded for him too, and he's a really good player. Uh, maybe Neil hasn't built a championship team, um, and I don't think he's done. I, I don't think he's without fault. But the idea that he should have a, a prove it year in the fault next season seems a little bit too much for me. Um, but we'll see what he does next year, and maybe I'll be agreeing with you, James. Okay, next question comes from Lewis also from Gmail, who says, Last week you touched on the first of the new episodes of The Last Dance documentary. And while I find the unseen, behind-the-scenes footage and raw interviews fascinating, what's with all the superfluous melodrama? The NBA junkies to whom the doc is targeted know that the story ends with yet another championship for the Bulls. That Jordan was a near-toxically intense competitor, that Rodman was a loose cannon, and that Scotty eventually got his money. To me, the narrative of how it happened matters more than how it might not have. A Bulls fan my age... Uh, I'll protect you, Lewis. Lewis is uh, in his 30s. Will consciously remember their teams winning six titles, and which is six more than I've seen as a Blazer fan in that same span. As diehard fans of non-Chicago teams, who exactly do they expect us to feel sorry for? Lewis, I don't get the sense that they are building up us to feel sorry for the Bulls. Uh, I do think they're building up some drama, but there is some drama. Uh, Scottie Pippen demanding a trade is drama. Uh, Dennis Rodman needing to go blow off steam for two and a half days in Vegas is a little bit of drama. Um, the GM of the team constantly saying that they're going to fire the coach after the season, uh, the best coach in the history of the game, by the way, uh, is drama. Uh, Phil wasn't that then. He was just, he was merely one of the top five coaches in the history of the league when they were going to fire him. So um, I, I don't think they're really cooking up superfluous melodrama. In addition, uh, I'm not sure that the NBA junkies is is the exclusively who the target audience is. I think this is a little bit wider than that. I've been watching it with my partner, who is a very, very big basketball fan. She loves hoops, but she's not like a junkie. She's not a total NBA dork like me. Um, and sort of the broad strokes or the big picture stuff helps contextualize things for her. Someone who really likes the NBA but wasn't, um, you know, couldn't, can't name every champion since 1975 in chronological order and the NBA Finals MVP. Um, a skill that is not useful but is impressive in certain circles. So, I, I get what you're saying. I've been left wanting a little bit more from the Last Dance docs. I've been wanting, I want a little more Rodman stuff. I wanted, um, I wanted them to to point out that he was a two-time defensive player of the year prior to um to leaving the Pistons uh, when he was you know shutting down uh the Bulls in in the 1990 and then losing to them in 1991 it's um 
or maybe 89-90 were his two defensive player of the years. In any case, when they were clashing with the Bulls, he was the best defensive player in the league. I didn't think they, I didn't, I, I thought they kind of glossed over that. Um, I would have wanted more shots of him wearing the wedding dress with Carmen Electra. Um, just, I, I think they could have gone deeper. I, obviously, there's like a whole 30 for 30 on Rodman that I could just tune into, but I, I was left wanting more, but I think I was left wanting more in a different way than you're left wanting more. Um, so I, I, I don't think they want you to feel sorry for anyone. Um, I think they just want to make make this the type of drama that you want to tune into next week. And frankly, I'm hooked. I'm going to keep watching. Okay, we're going to close out the show with this final question from Hotai Kim at Hotai underscore Kim 97 on Twitter. I missed this question last week. I got to I got to admit it. I was making my word doc that I do to set up this show and kind of get my thoughts organized and take notes and things like that, and I just did not copy and paste this one from Twitter. So, Hotsai Kim, I hope you're still listening cuz I blew it, but I came back to circle back to this one, and this was right after the first uh, couple episodes of Last Dance dropped. So, the MJ stuff was probably fresh in your mind. That first, the first couple episodes include uh, the Sam Bowie pick, the footage of the Sam Bowie pick uh, for the Blazers, and and obviously young MJ tearing up the league. And when I first read this question, I wanted to lean towards Kevin Durant. I'll be honest. I wanted to say that Blazer team in the middle '80s to the early '90s was incredibly good, and they got you know they almost reached the promised land without without MJ and, 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 uh, sometimes, you know, too much of a good thing can, can, uh, poison the well or whatever. And the, the, we already had Clyde shout out to the um, Seth Johnson's podcast, but so I wanted to lead Kevin Durant cause I was, I, I just thought, you know, the Greg Oden was never, we already, we already had Brandon Roy is not as convincing an argument as we already had Clyde because of Brandon Roy's light shined so bright and so quickly. And Greg Oden never got there. He showed moments, but he never got there. And he was, um, he didn't, he didn't, I don't think he particularly cared for the city. And he just, um, he didn't pour himself into basketball the way Kevin Durant did early in his career. And Durant is one of the great scorers in the history of the league. So I wanted to lead Durant. I wanted to say Durant is the bigger tragedy because if you draft Durant, you just figure it out. I know that he played he played shooting guard as, as a rookie for those P.J. Carlos Sonics teams. So, you know, it would have been hard to figure out how to share the ball between him and B-Roy. Uh, that was kind of late in B-Roy's career. How to share the ball was a was was an issue he had with Andre Miller. Um so I want to say that that's that's the problem. Is 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 that I want to say that it's you know, Kevin Durant could have saved that team and pushed them there. But Kevin Durant is one of the 15 best players of all time. You know, maybe higher. I don't know. It's hard for me to rank these type of things. But he's one of the great players in the history of the game. Michael Jordan is, at worst, the second best player in the history of the sport. It's probably not two, either. So while I wanted to lean Durant, and maybe it's recency bias, maybe it's my era bias, my age bias, but ah, man, young Jordan was so good, you know, before he kind of latched on with Phil and they became just a better team. He was the leading scorer in the league, averaging almost 38 a night. Hard for me to think that that wouldn't have helped. That there was a a special chemistry with those late 80s, early 90s 
Blazer team is that their their starting five was just so perfectly complementary. But add MJ to almost any team and they're going to be better. So I think Bowie over Jordan is worse than Odin over Durant. But the funniest part about the MJ thing is that the Blazers lost a coin toss. They lost a coin flip. They would have picked number one overall. And they would have picked Elijah Wan. Almost certainly everyone everyone in the in the league would have just because of the time it was. Um, you know, Kareem and McHale and Robert Parrish, that's who you're going against. Uh, you know, Moses Malone too in that in those Philly teams. That's um you you wanted a big. So the the funny thing is that even if the the Blazers if it works out for the Blazers they don't end up second and they win the they win the number one overall pick which they lost via coin toss <laughs> they're taking Elijah Wan and we are still thinking probably to this day God I can't believe they didn't draft MJ over Akeem that's gonna do it for Mailbag Monday this week thank you so much for listening we had a bunch of new question askers this week I love to see it. And if you want to be a new question asker or you want to just keep asking questions, you know how to do it. Tweet at me at Mike G. Rich or send me an email LockedOnBlazersPod at gmail.com. That's LockedOnBlazersPod at gmail.com. We'll do it again next week. Tell your friends about this podcast. They can find it wherever they already get podcasts. Just search LockedOnBlazers. We'll be there waiting for you. Appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.